Welcome to the Pond Hunter Broadcast from the Under the Sea Radio Show on Blog Talk Radio. The Pond Hunter, in the pursuit of all things aquatic. Take a look into the world of koi ponds, water gardens, and the lifestyles of the aquatically obsessed. Meet the pros, hobbyists, and cover some no-nonsense pond advice straight from the field. The Pond Hunter, in the pursuit of all things aquatic. Here's your host, koi pond and water garden expert, Mike Gannon. Hey, everybody. Hey, welcome. Welcome to the Pond Hunter Radio Broadcast. I'm your host, Mike Gannon, and welcome to episode 52. So, if you've heard the Pond Hunter Radio Broadcast before, you may know that I'm a pond professional and owner of Full Service Aquatics based in Summit, New Jersey. Full Service Aquatics specializes in koi pond, water garden, water feature design, installation, and services. And we do big ponds, we do small ponds, koi ponds, water gardens, water features of all different sizes. And we even do container water gardens, patio ponds, whiskey barrel water gardens, things along those lines. And I love these small ponds. They're actually the first pond that I ever had. And I love my container water garden. So keeping tub ponds is kind of a different skill set than keeping um, in-ground ponds. And my guest on this episode wrote a book on it, wrote a book on these. Dr. Ted Coletti is joining us, and he's author of the Tub Pond Handbook. Hey, good. How are you doing? Okay, Mike. How you doing? A long time since our old days at the Springfield, New Jersey Fin and Feather Pet Shop when we, yeah, when you and I yeah. first met about uh, 25 right. uh, years ago. And I will tell all of your uh, radio uh, listeners that Mike was probably one of the most knowledgeable aquarium guys I have ever encountered in a uh, store. He knew all the names and all the care. Um, so now you're doing ponds and... Uh, what I'm doing is yeah. kind of both. We're putting aquarium fish outside in ponds. So this is something I think yeah. that uh, interests all of us. It is. It's very interesting. And we do. We have we have history together, which I think is very funny. I, I remember those days very well back at Finn and Feather in Springfield. And uh, you definitely frequented the fish room, and we had some great conversations. And I, I remember uh, – looking forward to Tropical Fish Hobbyist magazine back in those days. Like I just couldn't right, wait for right. them to come. And seeing that you had written an article in there, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, this is this is Ted from the store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great. I think there was an article on Corey Doris. I, I know you had written a few, but Well I, yeah, I was you I, may have I, I was I was into uh biotope uh style aquariums back in the uh, early to mid uh nineteen nineties. Um, when right. I was living in that part of New Jersey. And so, you know, trying to uh, recreate those. And my interest in the hobby keep uh, evolving. But since 1997, for the past 20 years, every summer I take my hobby uh, outside. And uh, that's yeah. really what the book was uh, based on. Right. It's interesting we both kind of gravitated towards ponds. Um, right, right, And right. on the topic of Biotopes. Do you remember Heiko Blair? Do you recall him from the? Believe the it or industry? not, I. <laughs> this is very funny. I just was social media talking to Heiko this afternoon on uh, really? Facebook. Really? <laughs> yeah, believe, believe it or not, um, I don't know him that well. I've met him at the ACA convention and a few times. He's a living um, legend uh, in the hobby. But he was commenting on the Northeast Council of Aquarium Societies uh, convention that's happening next year, March 16th, up in uh, Rocky right. Hill, uh, Connecticut. And uh, he's interested in some of the speakers, and he chimed in. I go, hey, Heiko, how's it going? Yeah, Heiko uh, collects fish from all around the world. So uh, 
I know that you were a big yeah. fan of him too. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. I, I literally have his book on discus sitting right on my desk. I, I ran oh, into yeah. him about a month ago out in Chicago. There was a uh, convention for pond professionals called Pondemonium, and he was one of oh, the yeah. um, keynotes. Yeah, he was one of the keynote speakers really? there. And I tell you, I mean, what an amazing presentation he gave. Um, and then I did get to just speak with him briefly afterwards. I had him sign my book and, and all that kind of oh, stuff. Wow. And very, yeah, very nice, very interesting guy. So that's funny. You have to in, you know, every yeah, Heiko go of presentation, you know, in every Heiko of presentation, there's always one nude native person in there somewhere. He's always going in the forest <laughs> and uh, in the uh, jungle and showing some strange tribe that no one has ever seen. And he's like, <laughs> and it, it's like par for the course with every one of his uh, presentations. But he really right. is the uh, real deal. He's, he's, he's the real deal. Oh, he certainly is. Yeah, he really is. Very nice guy. Very nice family. So, very interesting stuff. So that's 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 funny. You know, it's a small world in some ways, and in, in fish keeping and pond keeping and everything. When when did you when did you become interested in ponds? Was this something that stemmed out of aquariums, or did you get involved with them earlier yeah. in your life? What brought it? Well, what, what really that? brought it on is. Um, I was involved in the early prehistoric social media called uh, CompuServe, circa 1990, where you know we actually paid, we actually paid people so we could uh, text on the internet, believe it or not. <laughs> and um, right. someone had told me a, a user out in a form called uh, Fishnet, which was one of the first forms, so that he used to put white cloud uh, mountain minnows, which is a very common uh, type of aquarium fish, outdoor in uh, rain barrels uh, during the summer, and they would breed. And that stuck in the back right. of my mind. I'm like, is it really that easy? So when I got my first house, actually my uh, second house, and um, I said, you know, I'm going to just get a rope barrel plastic utility tub. And the pond craze, as you remember, was going on around 1996. You could go everywhere and find pond plants. Walmart was selling pond plants and, you know, um, and oh, yeah. so I, I put some out and I put out some fish. I put out some live bearers. I did a lot of things wrong, but the most amazing <laughs> thing was they grew incredibly fast. They looked healthier than inside my tank. I went on vacation. I didn't have to feed them because there was so much insects, microscopic life, algaes entering that tub, um, that they right. were fine. And the fry grew incredibly fast. And I said, right. this is really neat. And then I got into pond plants, as I know you did too, Mike. And that yeah. opened up a whole other aspect, right? So when you're outside, you're, you're seeing your fish different than when you're inside of your uh, fish room. You're looking down on them. And right. you have to remember, when we keep fish inside, the behavior we see is them reacting to us because they think we're going to uh, feed them or they're scared. When you're outside, right. you're looking down, you, you could see their natural uh, behavior. You could see them sparring, the males chasing the females, the fry and how they behave. It gave a whole new uh, perspective to everything. Yeah, yeah. It is. It's an interesting approach to keeping fish. My first introduction, and you would probably remember this, this guy, um, to outdoor tropical fish keeping was by a guy in Springfield. He was a killifish breeder, Bill Jacobs. Did you ever meet Bill? Oh, God. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bill was in our fish club. Bill was a living legend. Um, yeah. He passed away in the early 2000s. I'm surprised that you knew him because, you know, one of my big regrets, because besides ponds, I'm, I'm also the founder of the Aquarium Hobby uh, Historical Society. And uh, that's the oh, group that okay. I founded. And I never got to interview Bill. Um, when oh. I joined the North Jersey Aquarium Society, he passed away soon after, but I met him a, a few times. So you actually got to know him, I, 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 I guess, a bit, Mike, is what you're saying, right? Yeah, I went to his house a few times. Oh, um, wow. I don't know if you remember had... Andy from Fin and Feather. He introduced me to oh, him. Oh, sure. And I, I saw his breeding facility in his basement, and he took us out in the Billy backyard, and, and he had all these... Yeah, and Molly's and just yeah. all sorts of 
crazy stuff, and they were um, they were huge. I mean, they were absolutely huge. It was yes, it was he pretty had, pretty amazing stuff. Bill 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 had the biggest sword tails that uh, you could ever find. You know, he was he was president of the Newark Aquarium Society back in 1928 when they boasted wow. like. I think around 3,000 members. I mean, it was crazy back then. So, um, yeah, he was an interesting person. And it, I, I, I think it's so neat that um, you got to see him and his setup. And that's a good point that you bring up. You know, keeping your fish outdoors during the summer, that's an age-old practice. And the fact that Bill Jacobs, who was close to 100 years old when he died about uh, 15 years ago, was uh, doing yeah. it, it became kind of a lost art. You know, um, people kind of forgot about it. So in the mid-90s, I had read in the old tropical fish magazines back in the 40s and 30s when people like, uh, you know, when um, people like Bill and uh, William T. Innes were always said, all right, it's June, it's time to bring your fish outside. And I said, you know, people have been doing this a long time, and it really is a really easy way to breed your fish, get them in color. I brought two fish that I raised outside a common swordtail and a, a paradise fish, two very common fish, raised them outside right. this summer, yep. brought them to the Keystone Clash weekend, which is held in Lancaster of Pennsylvania each, uh, each uh, September. Highly recommend that everyone goes to that event. Brought them to the show, and the swordtail, you know, um, came in third place in its class, and the paradise fish came in first. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that their colors were out of control. And, right. you know, when you see pictures like from uh, Heiko Mike, when, you, when you, take, you take those fish out of their wild habitat, and they have these great colors. Then when they're in the home aquarium, they're bred on the farms, they don't have the same colors you see like in those books. If you want to get colors similar to what you've seen, put your fish outside for yeah. summer. Because they're exactly. eating all the natural algaes, they're eating mosquito larvae, they're eating all the things that nature has evolved them to eat. And uh, right. it makes a big difference. Absolutely. And true sunlight and, and so many other factors and variables yeah. that come into play. Sunlight yeah, is key. It's and pretty... I'm really glad, that you, really glad that you brought that up because I truly believe that sun's natural ultraviolet light has a very positive effect. Uh, on fish, as well as uh, plants. I think in the aquarium hobby, right, we've right. gotten so high-tech, and we depend on these high-tech lights. I can tell you, if you have trouble growing aquarium plants, give them a little dash of sunlight from a window, uh, maybe across the room, or uh, put them outside. You will get amazing growth from them. Right. Yeah. It's it's so true, and that that's actually something that you get into in your book. And I loved reading your book, by the way. Thank you so much for the copy. Thank you. I, I I really I enjoyed it quite a bit. I thought it was really well put together. Um, it is a very comprehensive guide, and you know gets into a lot of the nuances of tubbing and container water gardening. Um, you know, it, it was very funny at times, and uh, also very deeply detailed. So. The Tub Pond Handbook, which is available on Amazon, everybody. Um, you kind of went into that, and, and basically the way you structured the book, one of the first things you talked about was location, which is where light comes into oh, it. Yeah. So location is something that you put way up on the priorities list. Tell me, what should people be considering when they're looking at doing an outdoor um, tub, a water garden with, mm-hmm. with fish, with plants? What are some of the location parameters that you would suggest people be aware of? Well, you see, you have to take into account that when you build a pond, as you do for a living, you know, you have a very large volume of water. So it's not going to heat up rapidly, if you know anything about uh, thermodynamics. It's not going to cool down as rapidly. And it's insulated uh, by the earth. When you have a freestanding pond, that's not going to be the case. So you have to make sure that I think the most important thing with a, with a freestanding tub pond is, that, is two things, the location where you have it. If it's in full sun all day long, um, it's going to heat up. 
And so right. you definitely want to you definitely want to get as large a container as you can. If you want a small tub, don't put it where it gets full sun all day. Maybe put it to a part of your deck or your patio where maybe as the sun passes a tree in your yard or somewhere across the street, it'll shade it. Maybe you want to put it right. where it gets morning sun and the afternoon sun. It's that midday sun between 11:30 and three o'clock that is the hottest now i can tell you i have tubs on my deck that get full sun about nine hours a day and they're absolutely fine and the reason for that is point number two mike you want to get a tub where the surface area is wider than the depth of that tub and my experience is if my surface area of a tub is wider than it is deep i can put a tub can get up to 90 degrees, 95 degrees, and the fish are absolutely fine. Uh, Because it will cool down at night, but it's that surface area that provides uh, the oxygen. Um, When you get like some of these small little tubs where they're kind of tapered look, I don't really care for tapered tubs. If, you know, there are some that are ornamental. I have a few in my book. Those are best for one that gets a little bit of shade during the day because the oxygen. But remember, we're talking about small fishes. We're not going to keep goldfish, although you can. We're not talking about koi. We're talking about small, temperate, and tropical fishes. They don't need a lot of oxygen. So they're very easy to keep uh, in that respect. But, yeah, um, you know, location and light are, are key. Yeah. One of the points you had made, too, that people should be should consider is, for example, don't place it on, like, your driveway or asphalt or something like that because right. the amount of heat, that'll throw off. So there's, there's things yes, people... Yes, I've... Uh, um, oh, 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 yeah, with, without a doubt. I mean, I've learned that the cats in the neighborhood loved all the dead sore tails that jumped out of the tubs when I experimented <laughs> 20 years ago. And they were yeah, not yeah. only on an asphalt driveway... They were a tapered tub, or those rope handle tubs, so the surface, the surface area was not wider than its depth. They were on black, hot asphalt, and they were in the full sun all day long. So I committed three yeah. errors there. Um, now, if you're keeping things like paradise fish, gouramis, as you know, they breathe air from the surface. They're, they're used to hot type of environments like that. But even then, right. you're... All that good bacteria, a lot of the insects, a lot of the frogs that will visit don't like it that hot either. So, yeah, that's, that's I think, another good example where location um, is important. Yeah. And once you've kind of found that just the right spot in your yard, when it comes to the container, you had mentioned that it should have a broader surface area than, than perhaps the height of the container itself. But one of the things I think is fun about, um, this approach to keeping fish and keeping plants is that the type of containers you can use, they can be oh, very yeah. functional. You can get very basic ones, but you can get ornamental and really creative oh, different sure. types of containers. There's all sorts of really cool stuff you can do to personalize yes. it and really make it your own. Yes. I mean, if, if something holds water, it's been used as a uh, tub. And, you know, right. once again, even if the surface area is not as wide as it is deep, there's a place for uh, tubs like that. You might use it as a, a shade tub, and there's lots of plants that do well in that shade. Um, you just have to make sure that the materials that are used for the tub are fish safe. And even if you don't plan to keep fish, remember, maybe you just want a uh, water garden. You still want to encourage the good bacteria and the insects and some of the frogs that will visit. So even with even though you're not keeping fish, you want to make sure the materials are safe to use. And if they're not safe, um, you all you have to do is coat the uh, container with a liquid rubber type product, and you're uh, good right. to go. Right. So if you're if you're not going to be keeping fish, let's say you are interested in just water gardening. Um, you would have a little more flexibility in the type of containers that you could keep. Is that correct? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. You would have a lot of, of flexibility. Um, but, you know, still, you want to encourage all the biological processes, insects, 
and um, and other things, the microscopic organisms that help keep that help keep even a water garden clean. So I would always try to go with that rule and make sure your surface area is at least or larger than its actual, um, you know, than how uh, deep the uh, tub is. But you do have more flexibility. Like if you wanted just a a small bowl on your uh, patio deck. There are miniature lotus plants, miniature uh, water lilies, uh, cascading plants, and you can make a nice little water garden bowl that'll work out uh, just fine. Um, The great thing about water gardening, and uh, this is a quote from the late Greg uh, Speaker, who said, "It's water gardening is gardening for people who fail at gardening. It's black sun gardening. You, you, you can't fail if you water garden. You can't underwater the plants. You can't overwater the plants. It is no fail gardening. Right. So if you've always wanted something that's colorful, a water lily, which I am crazy about. I, I uh, collect those uh, during the summer. Here, yeah. you know, here's an easy way to have a nice wow effect right on your deck, on your patio, your backyard, or even under a sunny window in your home, um, you know. So right. uh, the, the, the plants now for me are as exciting as putting out the fish. Yeah, it's, it is. It's very exciting. And there's a lot of cool stuff happening with water lilies too right now. There is. Um, very cool. What would be some – how would you – when you're, we're talking about – plants, how would you kind of break down or categorize plants for people who are thinking about doing it? Is there any formula? Yeah. Um, what, let's get into that. What, how, what would you recommend? Okay. Well, the first type of plant you have are what I call the uh, filter plants. The way that I do my tubs is I try to keep it simple. I don't have any pumps. I don't have any filters. Well, I do have a filter. The plants are the filter. I'm not keeping koi or heavy-bodied goldfish where I need some type of uh, mechanical uh, filtration. Plants are nature's filter. So your first set of plants are these vegetative filters that are going to keep the water clean and, most importantly, out-compete the algae, both the green water algae and the uh, string algae. Um, Things like cattails, irises, uh, um, things like that that have a very extensive root system. And the way to make right. that plant into a filter is you plant it in regular pea gravel in a perforated pot or a specialized pond pot just with plain gravel to let those roots come out uh, uh, through the water column. Um, okay. If you're not keeping fish, you should probably add some fertilizer now and then. If you are keeping fish, feeding your fish and the fish should suffice to um, satisfy the new the um, needs of those vegetative filters, so, so that would be the most important class. Okay. Um, and then when you're you using know, pea then, gravel, mm-hmm. let me just ask the with with pea gravel. There's a certain grain size that people tr- should try to stick within. Um, like you, you don't really want people getting more than about three eighths. Uh, inch as far as the actual size of the, the grain of gravel. Is that is that right? Well, you don't want to go you know, three-quarter or like one inch or you want to well, keep it you know, smaller? Well, I have seen iris, you know, yellow flag iris, grow with just rocks on top of the rhizome. And, you know, yeah. as you sit up, <laughs> um, you know, Mike, you've probably seen that too in, in some of these vegetative filter pools that people put right next to their ponds. Um, right. That's yeah. a very common way to do it. Uh, you know, if you look at the aquarium gravel we keep, that's very, very small. So for me, gravel size doesn't matter. I want a natural gravel that's not plastic coated. The Vigoro yeah. brand of pea gravel, they sell it at Home Depot and places like that. I find that gravel works best. Um, it right. doesn't come out of the perforated pot and it's a little rough and the roots can adhere to it. Um, but it's pretty simple. You know, we're talking just planting things in gravel is a very simple way. But when you look at the ornamental plants like the uh, water lilies, that's the opposite spectrum. You want to plant those in a solid pot with dirt 
and you want the okay. gravel on top to actually keep that dirt out. And you want to start fertilizing that water lily on a regular basis to uh, make it flower. So that's another aspect, which is a totally different way of keeping a plant. You're trying to maximize flowering. You're not trying to to clean the actual uh, water column. Okay. Yep. Different approaches. Right. For sure. And uh, a lily is a plant that really does like to eat a lot. If you kind of look at plants it's with certain appetites. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and the iris, too. I mean, iris is just insane. Um, yellow flag iris is is funny because it starts – I used to use it a lot in, in outdoor ponds. I don't use it so much anymore um, because right. it's just – it's almost too successful. <laughs> it is. You know? Like and after a couple of years, it's like, yeah. oh, my gosh. Oh God. You know? This it's was like so cute hog. two years ago. Right. It, it's a hog. And, you know, the other thing is the yellow flag iris is being banned more and more. It's actually banned in the state of uh, Connecticut now. It is a, uh oh, invasive wow. species. Uh, it's not native to the U.S. It has outcompeted our native blue flag iris. So if oh, wow. you get okay. yellow flag iris, which is probably the best vegetative filter I've ever used, um, if you yep. get it, you have to keep it potted. Do not let that get loose because it is an invasive species. Um, like you, right. I've been moving more towards uh, blue flag, um, you know, stuff like uh, the uh, blue and royal blue uh, plants are actually nice. Cattails, the right. dwarf-style cattails, I really like. Um, so there's so many choices out there. I mean, there are literally probably a thousand different pond plants that you can um, try um, each and every year. Yeah. And uh, you can and, really go crazy with them. And and all of them are interesting in their own right. So you in, in are, the book yeah. you kind of have a broken down. You have plants for filtration, plants for surface cover, ornament, ornamental. Um, you also have right. one for spawning spawning fish. What are some of the right. better plants? Like if you want want your fish to be, you know, be spawning and reproducing. What what are some good plants to maybe encourage that? Well, you know, it depends upon how your fish uh, reproduce. If your fish are the type that drive the females into the plants, rainbow fish uh, come to mind. Um, some of the barbs, like the rosy barbs, the gold barbs, the white clouds. A floating plant with a heavy root system that acts as like a spawning mop. For those of you who ever kept killifish, uh, you know what a spawning mop is. Water hyacinth. Yeah is probably the workhorse of any pond. It'll filter your pond. You'll get blue flowers on it. It floats. It doesn't need any gravel. It's a tropical plant, though. You have to put it out after the first frost. So if you're in Zone 6, New right. Jersey, like you and I, that would be after around May 18th or May 10th. And it'll keep going till it, till it gets frost again sometime in November. And that is right. a real workhorse plant. And you can take and um, you can, what I do, how I breed the uh, rainbow fish, I'll have one tub with all of the adults, one tub bare, and I'll just move that water hyacinth, pieces of it, back and forth every three days or so. And you will always find fry. You'll come out one morning, you'll see these little fish swimming around, and it's the coolest thing. And once you see that, that, you will be hooked. Yeah, you will be hooked. That's very cool. Very cool. Yeah, and so water hyacinth, also a plant that you don't want to let out into the environment. Very, very aggressive. One of the fastest-growing right. plants on the planet. Pretty it incredible. Is. And fortunately, yeah, I mean, fortunately in the northern states it dies out, but you're right. It is banned for sale and banned for import in all the southern parts of the USA. Um, if you're living yeah. up here in the in North and New England, Great Lakes, Midwest, um, it will die out. So you know, but um, it reproduces rapidly. Thank goodness. Yeah, and it it is a problem all around the world. Yeah. It it starts off as such a cute little plant at the beginning of the season, and by the end of the season, it's like, what the you you're garbage it out. full of this yeah, stuff? That's right. <laughs> you have a compost so, pile full of it. Full of it. Absolutely. Yeah. So. People you only come need to the end buy of the season. One. Right. Exactly. You only need to buy That's one. Funny. Yeah. 
every every August I get phone calls from just random people. Hey, do you do you buy water hyacinth? I'm like, no. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> I I do yeah. not, and I especially don't buy it during August. <laughs> no, no, no. So, we have uh, we have people come to our uh, fish club meeting in uh, September with bags of it, and I'm like, guys, don't bring it in. It'll because it, it's yeah. one of those plants that even if you try to keep it indoors under an aquarium, water hyacinth will not do well. Um, it's right. just cheaper to just buy it, you know, brand new, like every year. Absolutely. And, yeah. and you know, yeah, you can find water hyacinth at any garden center almost, you know, it's, it's really sold just about everywhere by the middle of May. Yeah. One of, one of the basics. So we had, we yeah. have, we've touched on a few, few different fish and there's, Many, many fish. I think a lot of people, when they do think of water gardening and um, container gardening, their mind still gravitates towards goldfish and fish, you know, a lot of that nature. Um, What are some fish, and there's many, that if somebody's just getting into it, might be um, some good Mm -hmm. choices? Well, I tell you, one of the nice things about keeping away, I mean, when goldfish are small, they're actually uh, fine for a tub. But as you know, goldfish can get up to like a foot, and then you have a bit of an issue. The other good thing about not keeping goldfish in koi is my equation is koi plus plants equals koi. You know, um, <laughs> you know they, these are fish that will decimate some plants. Some um, yeah, you can keep you can keep a wider variety of plants if you stick to what I call aquarium fishes, and the ones that are cold hardy are things like uh, paradise fish which are so docile, and they're always, you can pick them up uh, in your uh, hands. White cloud mountain fish, which are schooling fish. Rosy yep. barbs, another great fish. Gold barbs. Awesome fish. Are another. Yep. Um, zebra danios, which most people know. Um, yep. Any of the, um, some of the platys and swordtails, the ones that are more the basic uh, colors, they're uh, Central American fish, so they're used to some cooler nights. Um, you know, these right. are all good examples. The uh, book goes into a whole bunch of fish that will easily spawn for you in what I call a flock spawning. In other words, you just put a pair in your tub and the fry will live with the other uh, parents. So there, there's certain fish that, that will actually uh, do that for you. But there's a whole host of fish out there, and they're readily common. They're uh, inexpensive. And I bring them in at the end of the season, usually around September, although the paradise fish I can keep out. They're still outside now, believe it or not. And yep. uh, you can put them in a small home aquarium, or you can bring them back to a pet shop or donate them to your local fish club. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. And it's, it's and, great. There's so many and things. Even, and, and even better, the uh, blue uh, herons won't try to eat them. Um, right. So <laughs> you're not making a big investment here. You know, you're spending a couple of bucks. Right. And you're not opening a sushi bar in your backyard for the local heron population. Right. Um, it was a funny thing. A, a few years ago, um, the way I build ponds, I use rock and gravel on the interior. And I, right. I was doing aquariums. I don't. I actually don't do aquarium installation and service anymore. I, I sold that segment to the business years ago. But before I got out of it, and just just doing ponds, my guys one day to my place some embunas, you know, the orange embuna. Oh yeah. And put them in the my African pond tickles. because, yeah, they they didn't actually realize that they're not, you know, goldfish. <laughs> it was no. it was an innocent mistake. However. I'll tell you, they actually did really, really well in my pond outside. I didn't try to get them out till the end of the season. They got along right. fine with my with my koi, believe it or not. They would just really? kind of hang around the rock work. It was really, oh, really that's interesting. Awesome. That's it was awesome. it was really awesome. I spent like pretty much mostly at nighttime uh, watching these guys, watching them go in and out of the oh, rock yeah. work, and it was so oh, cool. Oh, they. I mean, so, I mean, you know, these are you know. These are fish from Lake uh, Malawi, from a Rift Valley rocky lake in Africa, and they're going in your rocky-hued pond. They were like, hey, man, this is where I'm yeah, living yeah. large here. So, And they Just have like all home. the sun. 
they're vegetarian, so they were eating all the algae. You probably couldn't. That's probably the best thing that you could do to those fish. And you know, you really bring up a very good point. You know, I have a fish room in my house because I'm, you know, I'm a hardcore uh, type of aquarium hobbyist. But during the summer, yep. I clean out my uh, fish room. I put all my fish outside. I'm putting out about 30 tubs outside because it's less work yep. for me, and the fish do better. I don't have to do water changes. You know, I'll top off if we have some type of evaporation. This past summer, it's been so rainy here in the northeast. I haven't had to top off except for maybe one time. And, you know, you're talking about, yeah, you're talking about warm summer uh, temperatures. This is when our climate becomes tropical. So you put out tropical fish. They don't have a lot of oxygen needs. And, you know, even if you have an in-ground pond, even if you put a small pond in ground, and I have some of my tubs uh, that way too. Some I have goldfish, some I have larger uh, cichlids in. And, you know, like you found, Mike, they love it outside. And they come out looking great at the end of the season. So how do your feeding routines change uh, when the fish are outside? But how about feeding your fish? What are some considerations? Yeah, I mean, when I first started it, I, I wouldn't, you know, it depends on how busy you are. I will tell you a fish outside can do, can go a lot longer than a fish inside without food um, because they're eating natural foods all the time. You know, um, mosquitoes and bugs and algaes and other microscopic organisms will be in that tub. So there's always going to be a, a nice food source, especially for the for the fry fish. So if you have baby fish, as you know, they need mic- they need a microscopic food. There's going to be sources in there uh, for them. But I still feed my right. fish every day, and I will tell you why. I find that my plants planted in pea gravel do better when I put some flake food in the tubs every day. Um, huh. You know, that, that helps the fish and it helps the plants. My plants start to yellow a bit when I don't feed my fish as much. Um, you know, the other option is my... Yeah, my plants that are in solid pots, I with dirt I'll fertilize. So, and it's nice, you know. I'll maybe in the morning before I go to work, or usually when I come home from work, I want to I I want to be outside. I don't want to go downstairs to my of you know, uh, fish room. I'll put on my shorts and I'll go outside with a little can of fish food, and I'll feed all my tubs. The fish will come up. I can see the flowers. If I'm home on the weekends, the water lilies will be opened and I can smell them. They smell great. You'll see the bees inside trying to get at all the nectar. Um, the dragonflies will fly by. So feeding the fish is not just good for the fish. It's good for you too, you know, because you're engaging with this mini ecosystem that you've built. And, uh, Absolutely. You know, <laughs> and – if I'm going to breed fish, I'll supplement. Maybe I'll probably use uh, frozen foods. I use white worms, glass worms, uh, brine shrimp. Um, I don't hatch my own live foods anymore. I don't have time. But if I want to breed them, I'll go for more high-protein live food or frozen food. Anyone who's a fish yeah. breeder will, uh, will, and Mike, you know, you also know this too. There's nothing like live foods to make a fish spawn. Oh no, yeah. Oh yeah, and this is no one doubt. of the benefits of keep. And this is one of the benefits of putting your tropical fish outside. There's live foods there yeah. every day, with you, without you yeah. even trying. Yeah, exactly. So that's and once benny. your fish are breeding, when your fish are breeding, you you have a successful uh, situation going on. And and when you have a lot of fish in an area, certainly you know you're going to attract some pests too. Now, the heron may not represent too much of a problem, but there are definitely things that people should um, be aware of. What type of um, pests and different types of animals or aquatic visitors can people expect uh, or maybe hope to see when they get into um, container gardening? Well, remember, pests is a relative term. Um, For example, some people see mosquitoes as, as pests. I see mosquitoes as food for my fish. And I also right. see a tub pond. Believe it or not, and I tell people this too, if you have a neighbor who's upset about you having a pond, tell them that you have a, mos- a mosquito control vector in your backyard. You are controlling mosquitoes all over the neighborhood. Because a female mosquito 
will has so many eggs to lay each night. She will lay them in the gutters of all the houses on the block, and they will hatch, and they will bite people. But if she sees a pond, she's going to lay them there. They like stagnant, still bodies of water. Any mosquito that right. lays eggs in my tub, those, those eggs will not see the light of day. The egg rafts will be eaten <laughs> by the fish. Any that do hatch will be eaten. I do not have any mosquito problem with my tubs. The tubs I have mosquito problem is ones that I don't have fish. But I also use a product, Mike, that you're very aware of called uh, Mosquito Dunks. Those little oh, round... Sure. Uh, and that is a natural bacteria that affects the guts of uh, mosquitoes only. And yep. um, I put just a little piece. You don't need a whole dunk. You need just like just a quarter of one dunk in a tub. Between that and the fish, mosquitoes are not pests. The real pest would be raccoons. Um, right. But my opinion is if you have raccoons coming to your property, you should take care of them anyway. You know, raccoons are the main live vector for um, rabies. I'm not a big fan of raccoons. They nest in people's homes. Uh, where I live in Denville, we had a girl who was bitten in her backyard by one at her uh, birthday party. Um, so if you have oh, a wow. lot of raccoons coming come into your property, I usually like to control them. Um, they tend to like ponds. They will rip up a pond if they see a fish or something like that. Um, so I haven't had a raccoon problem in my neighborhood for a while. We've had red foxes coming through my part of New Jersey, and they seem yep. to have controlled the raccoon problem. But about 10 years ago, I had a serious problem, so I had to uh, – I would uh, trap them each night and call uh, the animal oh. control agent. Very easy to trap a raccoon. I have a heart trap, very humane yep. trap, and uh, fish sticks. They cannot resist right. fish sticks, and I Who get them can? every night. And I mean, you know, you know, I mean, everyone loves uh, uh, fish sticks. I think there's a South Park joke there that we won't go into. Yeah. But, uh, but I mean, you know, that would be the pest, and that could be very, very frustrating because they will shred your plants and pull them up. Two things can keep a raccoon away. They have this thing called a, a predator light. It's these little red laser-like lights. They're about $20. Yeah. And raccoons tend to not like them. They look like the eyes of a uh, predator. Those have been somewhat effective yep. for me. And the other thing that's been effective is you take uh, chicken wire, you, you get it at the hardware store, cut it in little squares, put them in the baskets of your pond. When the raccoon tries to grab that basket, he gets a little sharpie on his paw. And they will then uh, avoid the air. That's a tip from uh, an Aquas and Union, uh, Paul uh, Nietzsche. And that also works, too. Okay. Yeah, so those are pretty pretty easy solutions. No no big challenges, you know, with things coming into your yard or anything. So when people are looking at, like, let's, let's do a, a real quick timeline from, um, you know, you said startup is usually going to happen around May. And, of course, during the season, you're enjoying and, doing what little maintenance right. needs to be done, hopefully mostly just enjoying. When would you say is a, a time to kind of tear things down and get things back inside? Mm -hmm. Well, Mike, if I can just backtrack one thing, one thing I'd recommend to everyone here who's on the line is set up your tubs first with your plants before you put the fish in. At least I like to set up my tubs about a month before or earlier. Pond plants will come into the garden centers in early May, and then I will put my fish in sometime here in Zone 6 in sometime early to mid-June. That gives the plants time to grow roots. It lets all the good biological bacteria form in your tub. You can get a starter culture of that bacteria at your aquarium store, um, and then you put in the fish in June. You, you enjoy them June, July, August parts of September, but then in September, you start looking at the forecast. If you see the temperatures, right. if, the, if, if, you know, now your fish will become hardy. You know, they'll be able to survive 60 degree-ish temperatures just fine. In the home aquarium, they often break down with, you know, ick. But outside, I've yeah. never had an ick. I've never had an ick problem because the fish have become accustomed to these uh, temperatures. But when you start getting into the 50 degree ranges, that's when you want to take the fish in. 
Um, okay. But and take a take a look at your ten day forecast. Sometimes what I do now, you know, it's been so hot now. If I see it going to be temporarily in the fifties, I will take an aquarium heater and put it in that tub overnight for a couple of days. If I don't want to take any okay. uh, fish yet, so that's you know one other option that that you can do. But you know, if you look at from when you plant, now after you take in the fish, Mike, keep those plants out because they're still going to be flowery. And all of our plants, most of most of our plants need that dormant cycle to come back next year, right? Like cattails won't form that catkin unless their rootstock freezes a bit. So I don't okay. tear down my tubs with plants until after the uh, frost happens. So my tub season lasts from late April to November. It's, you know, it's like half a year there of enjoying an outdoor pond, probably even more than yeah. that, right? Right. About eight yeah. months, actually. So That's great. Um, you know. That's a nice long season. So, I, you know, you mentioned maybe you have a, an aquarium heater on hand. What other type of equipment should people uh, try to prepare themselves with when getting into this, this hobby? Well, I would say... Remember, you want to focus on water temperature, not air temperature. So when you look at your forecast. So get yourself a pond thermometer that floats. I think the Hagen company that makes the uh, Laguna brand of products is very good. They have some very practical products. But you can get floating pond thermometers even at a uh, swimming pool store. Um, The ones for the pond hobby are black and they blend in. Um, you know, uh, uh, you you want to get a good tub. Um, I think the standard patio ponds that you get at some of the Home Depots or Lowe's are about thirty bucks. They have three shelves on them for plants that need some height. Right. Very practical. You can go to agricultural yep. stock tanks that they sell a tractor uh, supply, and you want to get a net to net those fish out. Um, the standard aquarium nets don't really hold up when you start moving your hand through that pond. I like to get a uh, pond hand net. Um, You know, um, Laguna makes one with like an aluminum handle that won't bend. So when you take the fish out, but really, there's really not a lot of equipment you need, which is the point I want to bring home. This is really easy. You don't need filters yeah. and artificial lights and stuff. I mean, there's the equipment you just need is a tub, water, and some plants. You know, yeah. at its bare minimum, if you just had that, you could have a pond, maybe throw in a uh, mosquito dunk. And that's really yeah. about it. I think the thing yeah. people want to remember, though, and I think this is the thing that you tell people, too, is if you're going to add fish, dechlorinate that water that's in your right. tub. You know, get a good something because right. to remove the, the chlorine burns the gills of of, of uh, fishes. Get a liquid yeah. dechlorinator at your local uh, pet shop, a real high quality one like Ultimate or Prime, and um, do that before you put in your fish. Right. It's easy stuff. I mean, it really is very easy, very enjoyable. Nobody should be, you know, um, afraid to go ahead and give this stuff a try. No. And the book makes it really easy, too. It's a really great book, Ted. And uh, I thank you so much for taking time to come on with me onto the podcast and share this with this information with me and the listeners. And, again, everybody, you can find the book on Amazon. And you have some other titles on there as well. This isn't your only book. What are some of the other books you have? Well, my favorite group of fish are the uh, live uh, bearing fish, Mike, the platy swordtails, mollies, and all the wild type of uh, live bearers. So um, I did write a book for TFH called Aquarium Care of Live Bearing Fishes. It's only available now as an e-book. Um, that's out there too. Okay. And those and where are fish people... that make. Um, you can get that at any of the online uh, booksellers. It's sold as a uh, ebook, uh, Barnes and Noble, or on uh, um, Amazon, or at other places. Okay, and then where can people connect with you? Well, um, we do have a Facebook page called the Tub Pond Handbook, and um, I 
always post pictures of my ponds and tubs and water lily blooms uh, on that page on a regular basis. So if you go to Facebook, type in Tub Pond Handbook. That's a social media site uh, for us. Um, um, I'm in the New Jersey area, so any of the local fish clubs, I probably frequent those as well. And uh, uh, you can contact me through those sites and also through the Amazon author page. Great. Well, thank you again so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope uh, we get to do this again sometime. And I hope to see you sometime in the near future. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. It was good talking about old times. Yeah. You too, Ted. Thank you so much. Take good care. And we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thank you. That was Dr. Ted Coletti, everybody, a fellow fish guy a fellow pond guy, really good stuff. So his book is great. Don't be afraid to go small, everybody. You can get some really big enjoyment from small ponds without a doubt. And I can personally attest to that. One of my first ponds was a small pond. That was a a miracle for me. It uh, really was a great distraction at a time in my life when I needed it. And my daughter was young and she loved it. We had fish and we had snails and we had coming by and cool plants and all this kind of stuff. The varieties in which you can create a garden tub or a fish pond tub are pretty endless. So container ponds, tub ponds, they're fun, easy, they're pretty inexpensive, they're versatile enough to do urban ponding, suburban yards, country settings, um, very cool stuff. You can do all sorts of really great things in a little area. There's always room for a tough pond, you know? Come on, everybody, get on board. So, hey, everybody, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Mike Gannon. This is the Pond Hunter radio broadcast. You can find more Pond Hunter on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. You can even find me on LinkedIn, y'all. Till next time, keep it pondy, and remember... You're listening to the Pond Hunter. You have been listening to the Pond Hunter Radio Broadcast on Blog Talk Radio with your host, Mike Gannon, the Pond Hunter. In the pursuit of all things aquatic, broadcasting Wednesday nights on Blog Talk Radio. The Pond Hunter, keeping it pondy for the aquatically obsessed. For the aquatically obsessed like you guys, thanks for tuning in again. And remember, share your lifestyle, share your hobby with your friends, family, and people that you love. This is a great hobby. Let's keep it strong, and we'll see you next time, everybody.